This program is brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu. So it's really an honor to be here to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Arts Administration Program and the 25th anniversary of the Research Center for Arts of Culture, which for the last quarter century has been the world's leading research center for the study of the lives, work, careers, and living and working conditions of artists, as well as the longest-lived cultural policy center at any university. It's been my privilege to watch RCAC grow and flourish as a member of its advisory board. Joan first entered my life without knowing it in 1984 when a sociologist friend who knew of my interest in cultural policy lent me her copy of The Emerging Arts, Management, Survival, and Growth, and she still hasn't gotten it back. I was in the midst of a study of arts managers, and I was having a pretty good time with um, theater managers and orchestra managers and people like that, making a lot of progress, but I felt if I was missing the sort of dense undergrowth of experimental and socially oriented arts groups, and I'd really wanted a good book to explain it all, and The Emerging Arts was that book a thorough and thoughtful volume that combined an insider's knowledge of the gritty details of entrepreneurship and management with the scholar's analytic purchase on the big picture. It's still the best book in the subject, which is why I keep um, bugging Joan to do a new edition of it. The center has played an extraordinary role in the ever-emerging field of cultural policy research during the past quarter century in three ways, producing superb research, building the field, and working with artists and policymakers to make sure that the center's research touches the people who it's, uh, they're studying. On the first point, we can trace RCAC's achievements through the work produced. The list of books and reports for which Joan is responsible is long. The Emerging Arts, which I mentioned, Arts Money, Using It, Saving It, and Earning It, Information on Artists 1, 2, and 3, The Actor Speaks, The Painter Speaks, The Craftsperson Speaks, Changing the Beat, A Study of the Work Life of Jazz Musicians, Making Changes, The Transition of Professional Dancers to Post-Performance Careers, Above Ground New York City Aging Artists, and I probably left some out, but most recently with Yu Ding, who's here tonight, um, Respect for Art, Visual Arts Administration and Management in China and the United States. Through this work, Joan has brought into the center's collaborative orbit some of the leading scholars in arts policy, people like William Baumol and David Throsby, and even recruited some leading non-art scholars like um, Cornell University's Doug Heckethorn, with whom she's collaborated on methodologically groundbreaking research on identifying the size and characteristics of unknown um, artist population, applying a, a really the cutting edge uh, technique to the study of uh, jazz artists. We can also assess the center's contribution by looking at its role in the field as a whole. From the moment the center was founded, Joan became the indispensable person for any gathering that was focused on research on artists. And she was the person who knew where the data were and what they told us. When our center at Princeton a few years ago had the opportunity to sponsor a small meeting on methodological issues in the studies of artists, it was a no-brainer to partner with RCAC on the project and on the report that came out of it, and it was a much better project for doing that and Joan's willingness to participate. But Joan's also played a broader institutional role. She adopted the Journal of Arts Management and Law at a critical period, developing it into the top arts management journal in one of the top two or three cultural policy journals. More broadly, yet, she's 
uh, built an extraordinary international network of researchers through her own peripatetic travels to Australia, Israel, Brazil, Hong Kong, Russia, and if I kept going, we would probably run out of time, and also by hosting scholars from many countries here at Columbia. Her own talented students and alums, many of whom are in the room tonight, are themselves an important network. Finally, the most unusual thing about the center may be its success in staying close to the people who it has studied and using its research to give back to the arts. All researchers want their research to be useful, but Joan makes sure that it happens. When the center's studies are published, they are rolled out into the arts community through meetings with artists, feedback from and to artists, and work with any policymakers who will listen. And I think a lot more policymakers have come to listen over the years. Um, the publication of Artists Help, the Artist's Guide to Work-Related Human and Social Services in 1990, and her recent uh, participation in the federal government task force on artists' health issues are just two particularly notable examples of the center's modus operandi. As a result, RCAC has developed unique credibility with artists' organizations, unions, and other groups who are normally suspicious of academics. Um, and I should add that RCAC gives back a lot to the academic community as well. Um, it was the first university-based center to deposit its data with CPANDA, the data archive um, at Princeton. And um, its model encouraged many other um, people to deposit their data as well. And the material remains the best data for looking at, at artists that's available. Um, all, of, all of this philosophy was clearly pre-visioned um, in Joan's first plan for the center. What has been impossible on any broad scale, she writes, is a center where peer research can be conducted without the pressure of other agendas or political concerns, where the applicability of that research can be determined by teams of scholars and practitioners, and where studies can be conducted over time that will help the already shrinking resources for the arts and culture to go further by offering alternatives previously unexplored. What also needs to be addressed as such research progresses are the mechanisms to translate the findings into useful and manageable form for those artists, managers, and institutions that can best benefit from them. Joan has worked tirelessly and brilliantly in building RCAC, in establishing and bringing to fruition its research agenda, in spreading its influence nationally and then internationally, and making sure that it keeps its deep connections to the artists on behalf of whom it's worked and in so doing has turned RCAC into a national asset. I'm sure that you'll enjoy, um, join me in congratulating her on this 25th anniversary occasion. So my other pleasure tonight is getting to introduce our, our main speaker, Adrian Ellis. Um, Adrian, as you know, is executive director of Jazz at Lincoln Center, a role he assumed in fall 2007, and as he puts it, a great gig for someone who's been an avid jazz fan since the age of 10. Um, and growing up in Wales, he, he came by it with, you know, more, it's harder to become a jazz fan um, in Wales than I did it. You know, growing up in New Jersey as I did. Adrian exemplifies the sector-spanning careers of some of the most distinguished and innovative arts leaders. He was educated at Oxford in the London School of Economics, taught political theory at Oxford, and joined the UK Treasury Department in 1981, working on monetary policy and privatization. From there, he became head of the Conrad Foundation, 
where he was responsible for planning and managing the creation of London's Design Museum. In 1990, he founded AEA Consulting, where he worked on strategic operational and facilities planning with such clients as the Victoria and Albert Museum, the British Museum, the J. Paul Getty Trust, El Museo del Barrio, New York City Opera, San Francisco Opera, Pan American Center, San Francisco Jazz, and many, many others, including clients in Mexico, Germany, Hong Kong, and Azerbaijan. And, um, worked with Wynton Marsalis in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina led indirectly to his current position as head of jazz at Lincoln Center. And he's been teaching a, a course here, which I know that some of you have been attending, and, and there was a lot of positive buzz in the room, even, even in the few minutes I've been here. Uh, tonight, Adrian will share some very important ideas, ideas that I think are of a piece with the mission of RCAC and of the Arts Administration Program, in a talk entitled Prognosis for Culture, How to See in the Dark. Thank you, Paul. Uh, when um, Joan and I were rummaging around for a title for the talk, a talk unwritten, I hadn't realized we'd come up with something which is such sort of Spenglerian pomposity. So um, my apologies is this is a more modest contribution than the, than the, the title, uh, title implies. Um, at Jones, uh, as Paul mentioned, at Jones' uh, reckless invitation, uh, I'm currently leading a two-week seminar uh, on cultural policy with about 25, I think, uh, graduate students and arts administrators. And uh, one of the rifts we've been exploring is the difference between policy analysis and advocacy. And I think the distinction is clear enough. Uh, in policy analysis, you try to be as objective as possible through employing the various techniques of uh, uh, methodologies of social science and through the development of a critical cast of mind. It's not a question of my truth or your truth. It's a question of the truth, that there's a distinction between the normative and the positive that you can't derive um, is from ought. Uh, and um, uh, in analysis, you try and let the truth speak for itself. In advocacy, you have a moral, or in the case of a hired gun like me, professional commitment to a particular outcome. And you're going to use what you can to persuade the world of the merits of your convictions. You don't give truth the same seat at the head of the table as you should always give it in policy analysis. I spent um, nearly two decades as a consultant uh, in the cultural sector, and consultants, like lawyers, have an interesting relationship to the truth. <laughs> if you're not just an extra pair of hands, or alternatively, a paid legitimator, by which I mean someone who overtly acknowledges that they're there being paid as an advocate and not a purveyor of objective advice, you are constantly working through how honest you can afford to be. And that includes saying, I don't know. And I, I don't know, in case you haven't noticed, isn't the, usually the door to professional advancement. Um, if you're too blunt in speaking the truth, or speaking truth to power, as you like to think, then your assessment may make you feel virtuous, but your client finds it easy to spit out your analysis and its bitter conclusions in righteous indignation. If you give too tempered an account, they'll taste the sugar but ignore the pill. But the great merit of consulting, for all its pariah indignities, is that it gives you a range of different experiences to triangulate and therefore opportunities for pattern recognition of one sort or another. 
but you're always in a negotiated position. Your client has an agenda, a normative agenda, a belief about what ought to happen, a belief that led both to your gig and the choice of you to fulfill that gig. And if you get too fundamental or sanctimonious about where truth lies, you're in effect reinventing a different client and pushing the person who's paying your bills out of the way. Wisdom lies ultimately not in choosing the right projects, but the right clients. That is, if the laws of demand and supply afford you that luxury. There is a domain of analytical solutions, and there's a domain of politically acceptable solutions. And I think that they have diverged over the last 20 years, or for the, the period I've been, I was consulting. And what I mean is that my job moved from finding analytical answers to problems and then delivering them to clients arts administrators, funders, government agencies, who welcomed the news that the problem was cracked, that we'd worked out how much it would cost or how to structure things or whatever, to employing rhetorical skills to persuade the client to change their terms of reference so that an unacceptable solution would become acceptable. That may be because I got more difficult gigs as time went on, but I honestly think that that was only a small part of it. I believe that the problems facing my clients grew, and they continue to grow, more complex and intractable. They are genuinely difficult. Andrew Young has just written a book that included the resonant phrase, there can be no democracy without truth, there can be no truth without controversy. Or controversy, I think you'd say. <laughs> I think it struck me, uh, that, that phrase struck me, be because of the mood I'm in, or was in, that the unremitting tenor of advocacy and its suppression of controversy in the cultural community has not necessarily served us as well as it might. We're all aware of certain advocacy myths. That the, um, one example, the transformational impact of Mozart on the fine motor and cognitive skills of our unborn children. I've often wondered what the uh, Stockhausen effect or the Sun Ra effect would be. <laughs> or that non-profit organizations are axiomatically wellsprings of creativity. They're often deadeningly uncreative, and the structures and strictures of the 501c3 hierarchy, systematic underinvestment, high levels of unionization, are often at odds with the paradigm of the flat, decentralized, agile organization of the average celebrated Harvard case study. Or again, that a culture of risk and innovation is compatible with the desire to be integral to the civic agenda and central community life. Advocacy gets in the way of objectivity. There's a place for both, but this place is, is not a place for advocacy or the idea that willpower conquers all. It's a place for analysis. Churchill never said, never, never, never give up. What he said was, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. How many people knew that? In other words, how many people have heard uh, arts administrators say, never, never, never give up in an unqualified fashion? It was a qualified statement. So I want to say a little bit about a specific piece of wishful thinking or advocacy, which concerns the strictures that we all find around new business models. New business models are our deus ex machina. And arts organizations seeking philanthropic support are likely to overemphasize the redemptive potential of these models because they imply a temporary rather than permanent reliance on philanthropic funding that is likely to appeal to the funder. 
However, I would want to argue that a lack of uh, a systematic lack of commercially exploitable assets explains the absence of developed new business models in the sector. There's no disgrace in this unless you take market success as a sign of moral worth. I recently spent some time with a friend who runs a distinguished jazz record label based here in New York. The label has a strong brand identity, an extensive back catalogue, and an ongoing knack for identifying, nurturing, recording, and promoting new talent. But the business model that once made a strong brand, a deep catalogue, and good ears a lucrative business has been ruptured by changes in technology that have in turn affected distribution and consumer behavior. It's hardly a secret that the recording industry is in free fall. Music is increasingly regarded as a free good by consumers, and if not free, then worth only a fraction of its traditional price. Downloading, whether through legitimate sources or illegally, is inexorably replacing CDs as the medium of choice. This change is more disruptive than the shift from vinyl and cassette to digital recording had been. Apple's iTunes today is the single largest, largest music distributor. My friend has been scrambling to address a new set of issues. What exploitable assets does his label have? How can they be leveraged to generate income? Should the label ally itself with a distributor, uh, digital distributor like Apple or compete with it? Can the brand attract online advertising? Should merchandise be licensed to generate income? Jazz clubs, coffee books, etc. His mission and commitment to the music are unchanged, but the context has been transformed. Ownership patterns have been too. About 10 years ago, the then independent label sold itself to one of the major labels in order to generate capital. That label has been since uh, bought by a hedge fund, uh, sold to a financial institution. Any strategic uh, decisions need to be signed off in London. The hedge fund that owns it is itself grappling with lawsuits from investors stemming from the terms of the original acquisition. My friend and his dilemma is not top of their mind. This is not an unusual story, bleak little vignette though it is. Changes in technology and consumption have transformed many sectors of industry since the Industrial Revolution. The process of creative destruction, to use Joseph Schumpeter's famous oxymoron, is no further from the heart of late capitalism than it was from that of early capitalism. What happened to the horse and buggy also happened to the typewriter, the telegram, the Polaroid camera, and the camcorder. And as technolo technological in innovation accelerates, so does social upheaval. Cultural activity is particularly subject to these forces as it's linked umbilically to tastes that are rooted in contemporary sensibilities. Markets translate technological change into industrial transformation through access to capital. If you can't access financing from retained profits or from capital markets, then you are unable to invest in the exploitation of your innovation. The insulation that non-profit status gives arts organizations from capital markets, I mean having trustees rather than shareholders as the sovereign body of the organization, affects how the, the sector accesses capital allowing it to add philanthropic sources to commercial ones. But it does not immunize organizations from the need for capital. The cultural sector is experiencing stress associated with challenges in accessing adequate capital. There is a shortfall in the capital investment required for the level of activity that the sector is seeking to sustain. What's happening to opera in LA or New York is different from what's happening to community theater theater in rural Idaho. 
The stresses manifest themselves in different ways, but they are there. For the latest uh, New York uh, account, see the report issued yesterday by the Alliance for the Arts. Our society has deep-seated assumptions about the normality of growth and the inevitable inevitability of disruption caused by growth. In the private sector, we call it rationalization, brutal though its implications may be. It's seen as the necessary corollary of development, tempered by social policies, but never thwarted. By contrast, one of the premises of not-for-profit status in the arts is that some intrinsic benefit, irrespective of demand, flows from the activity of a cultural organization. This means that resistance to change, which is termed progress in the private sector, is prima facie in our sector valued and supported. This doesn't mean that non-profit cultural organizations live outside the market. What it means is that in addition to living in a consumer market and in a traditional capital market, non-profits also live in a philanthropic market. The third of these markets is needed and institutionalized through Section 501c3 of the Federal Tax Code and through state and federal laws because of the difficulties in developing a viable business model based on access to the first two. The greater the changes in the first two markets, the greater the reliance upon the third philanthropic market. And as you know, um, uh, no one who can make a go of it in the first two markets would expend time, effort, and ritual humiliation required to raise capital in the third market. Because of the non-financial criteria that inform decision-making in the philanthropic market, securing funding from it often requires arts organizations to, prevent, to present arguments according to which investment from philanthropic sources will, in the long term, decrease reliance on the market and correspondingly increase the organization's viability in the first two, i.e. the consumer and capital markets. When it comes to support from intermediate associations like uh, the, the, the Symphony Orchestra League or APAP, the argument usually revolves around increased self-sufficiency of a whole cohort of organizations. For this reason, the rhetoric of self-reliance is understandably, if somewhat ironically, the starting point of many pitches to and exchanges with philanthropic sources by cultural organizations. The more threatened the self-reliance, the greater the emphasis on it as a goal of philanthropic support. I find myself doing this in my own uh, organization in conversations with funders. The key point here is that in fashionable Freakonomic counterintuitive logic, all other things being equal, the more critical the reliance on philanthropic sources by cultural organizations because of adverse conditions and accelerated change in consumer and capital markets, then the larger one may anticipate the part played in the dialogue between funder and funded by rhetorical appeals to the potential of new business models. The imperative behind the development of new business models is decreased reliance on traditional philanthropic sources of funding. The development of these models is encouraged by a philanthropic market because they, in turn, want to maximize the gearing on their finite resources. My jazz label friend, ruminating on how to use his label's brand appeal to develop a new business model, is attempting, with some desperation, to escape what looks like uh, to an outsider like his company's destiny, that is, obsolescence. In escaping his historical fate of closure in the context of the private sector, he can only appeal to investors, perhaps abetted by some canny public relations company. His arguments need to have financial rigor that is independent of and does not address the enormous cultural value that he or I attach to his back catalogue, of which he is de facto head curator. The leap from executive 
record producer to branding and merch expert can be made by him, but it requires a level of entrepreneurial skill that just sits uncomfortably with a strong if nostalgic commitment to the status quo. I personally don't see him succeeding. If one looks at the discussion of new business models in the nonprofit sector, I would suggest that much of it looks similarly like an attempt to avoid destiny, an implausible shark jump for which the average arts organization is as ill-equipped as my old desert. Let's take a definition of a new business model. Uh, a robust way of generating new sources of net income that is mission congruent, one that does not put at risk an organization's charitable status, that is not dependent upon some temporary tax or legislative loophole, and that has the potential to meet a significant proportion of the total operating budget, let's say arbitrarily 7%, within three years of being launched. The last generation of new business models revolved around the development of retail and catering in museums and performing arts facilities. They have now become standard fare. I undertook an extensive analysis of catering and retail in the museum sector, I don't know, about six or seven years ago. The conclusions were clear and have some ramifications. First, mission and money often pull in different directions. Catering and retail strategies that seek to function as an addition to the visitor experience that reinforce and support the performative or curatorial agenda usually fall well short of the strategies that would lead to profit maximization. Over time, mission and organizational trump uh, culture trump money as an imperative, and operations tend towards revenue neutrality. In other words, we tend to use our shops and catering as ways of enhancing the visitor experience rather than as a means of contributing to the bottom line. Most such oper operations I've looked at cover their marginal costs, but not the full costs of operation when you take in uh, inputs like full overhead, maintenance, etc. Second, and probably more of more general significance to the consideration of new business models, successful entrepreneurial activity in the culture, cultural sector is no different from that in any other sector in requiring three conditions to be met. First, there needs to be a commercially exploitable asset of some sort. Second, there needs to be capital available to exploit the asset. And third, there needs to be the ability to apply an entrepreneurial skill set to the exploitation with freedom available to take risk. These three lenses provide a salutary perspective from which to review candidates for new business models and their prospects of success. The view may differ, but the lenses are no different for the beleaguered jazz label than for the Metropolitan Museum. Let's take assets first, the first of those uh, three. The checklist of assets usually considered as commercially exploitable include either intellectual property, recordings, videos, scores, artifacts suitable for licensing, protectable brand identity, consulting, exhibition management, programming skills, or what one might call contingent assets, real estate or services that can exploit locational advantages or sheer footfall generated by the core business. The challenge for the not-for-profit sector is that, these, uh, um, is that these assets are either just there or difficult to create if they're not there, such as the British Museum's uh, six million visitors or the Metropolitan's six million visitors, or they are assets that the private sector itself is searching with difficulty to find ways of exploiting commercially. I'm working through the Jazz at Lincoln Center archive at the, at the moment. Um, 
uh, I can tell you now that um, it's a labor of missionary love rather than a labor of uh, potential return. We're in the throes of a well-publicized revolution in the valuation of intellectual property. And although there's a widespread conviction that the monetary value attached to content and brand will increase over time, distribution models that allow it to be monetized remain poorly articulate. Content, alas, is not yet king. It is subject. The Metropolitan Opera's well-publicized venture into high-def video uh, recording and cinematic distribution, instant encore presses of live recordings of concerts, the uh, American Museum of Natural History's uh, exhibition loan program, all these are laudable forays into content exploitation territory. None, however, meets the definition of a new business model as articulated above. They are peripheral to basic concerns of viability. They will not save the day. They, are, they may, however, be a way of meeting uh, new donors. When income streams are potentially higher, organizations can run into political and administrative or legal constraints. Those institutions that have financially viable assets other than intellectual property often have a duty of stewardship that is related to their ownership, most obviously museums whose collections are rarely listed on their balance sheets. Those assets can in theory be monetized through the sale or long-term loans, i.e. leasing, to third parties. In this way, a cash-poor but asset-rich institution could, in effect, engage in a form of trade with a cash-rich but asset-poor institution. However, the challenge is to do this in a way that does not breach stewardship responsibilities as interpreted by professional bodies such as the uh, AAM and the AAMD. The Louvre is pioneering this model in Abu Dhabi in Atlanta, but it is controversial, and for an organization with less gravitas, it can mean reputational suicide. Jeff Edges, the um, Boston Globe journalist, broke a story on the front page of the Boston Globe today um, about uh, the Rose Museum's discussions with Sotheby's um, uh, uh, leasing the collection. What was interesting is the spin on the story as much as the story. It is seen as a uh, potential scandal. It's seen as a reputational, uh, uh, a further um, dent in the reputation of the Rose Museum, or rather um, of Brandeis University's stewardship of the Rose Museum. There are ad hoc opportunities for IP and brand exploitation that can be grasped by a savvy entrepreneurial organization. The Smithsonian's sponsorship arrangement for Night at the Museum 2, Escape from the Smithsonian, comes to mind. <laughs> but these are one-off arrangements. They rarely amount to, they are rarely systemic or, or replicable as business models, and they rely enormously on brand recognition. The Met, the Smithsonian, who knows, Jazz at Lincoln Center, I fully intend. But it's winner-take-all um, uh, territory. It's difficult territory to generalize. So let's move to the second uh, element, which is available capital. Financing models are not business models, but they are an important component of them. By financing models, I mean models for accessing capital for investment purposes below market rate, often by virtue of the tax status of the borrowing organization. They include tax-exempt bonds, soft loans from agencies such as the nonprofit finance fund, sale and leaseback of buildings, microfinance, etc. The key issue is that they are primarily relevant to cash flow and not to balance sheet issues. Obvious examples of smoothing out cash flow shortfalls caused by um, different timing of income pledges and ongoing expenditures in the capital campaign or meeting startup costs of a new business venture. Where financing per se generates income that does not require repayment, <coughs> i.e. surpluses, it is dependent critically on the exploitation of tax legislation that may or may not be transitory. There is frequent discussion about whether such opportunity is likely to endure or if it would be noticed and choked off by the authorities. 
Complex financing measures can occupy a disproportionate amount of board time and organizational attention inside nonprofits. Sale and leaseback, for example, ricochets around my boardroom every time things get rough. But I believe these preoccupations are not because of the critical long-term contribution to the organization, but because their technicalities are within the comfort zone of board members with financial backgrounds who rightly want to make themselves useful. The current credit uh, dramas notwithstanding, we live in a time of unprecedented availability of capital to support new ventures. Growing wealth distribution, inequality, and the emergence of fabulous sovereign wealth in the Middle East and Asia are generating large liquid pools of capital. Venture philanthropists and venture capitalists share an appetite for startup projects that allow them to withdraw over time and harvest the financial or programmatic fruits of their investment. They look for business plans that have plausible assumptions that with at least a hint of black ink uh, by year three or four. The challenge is not access to capital. The challenge is to find new business ventures, philanthropic or otherwise, that have a reasonable prospect of breaking even or making a profit. In short, the impediment to the development of new business models is not lack of capital to invest. Rather, it's the lack of suitable projects in which to invest. Let's take the third factor, which is entrepreneurial skill. Capital and an exploitable asset represent unrealized potential unless there's someone with the skill and appetite and permission to exploit them. The current charity model is problematic for entrepreneurial activities. Moreover, commentators have observed that entrepreneurial 501c3s are provoking legislative disfavor. There is a potentially debilitating tension between the development of new business models and the conditions surrounding charitable status. Nonprofits have, in any case, systemic tendencies towards the hierarchical and the rule-driven, with low levels of financial de delegation and a tendency to underinvest in skill building. These tendencies can be kept at bay by energetic leadership, but any model that depends on transformed organizational features, flatter organizations, delegation of financial decision-making, heavy investment in hu human resources, will also require alternative organizational forms to encourage and enable them. Joint venture in the private sector or shareholding in private sector subsidiaries by parent nonprofits provide alternatives. But nonprofits of any scale, including charitable foundations, are innately risk averse. So, if you're looking for new business models that can make consistent contribution to financial viability of nonprofit arts organizations, then you need to examine what commercially exploitable assets the organization has, whether it has access to capital and whether it can realistically apply entrepreneurial skills to exploit these. Such exploitable assets is significantly scarcer than capital and are mo mostly found in conventional areas such as real estate. Commercially exploitable IP is rare in cultural organizations, and the private sector is finding the exploitation of, of IP assets uh, itself challenging. I therefore suggest that a significant proportion of the debate around new financial models may be a form of displacement activity drawing focus away from long-term truths about the conditions for the underlying financial vitality uh, of arts organizations. I'm not sure I can provide a robust rationale for all the seven propositions I'm about to make, but they embrace the insight that new business models are unlikely to be the AS, deus ex machina for the cultural sector. First, survival is the mission of many arts organizations. They can and maybe should be ruthless in rallying their arguments. But the veteran UK commentator Jeremy Paxton says when he's, uh, what he thinks about when he's going in to interview politicians, his frame of reference usually is, why is this lying bastard lying to me? <laughs> this may be extreme, 
but foundations are understandably reluctant to make tough calls about institutions, similar to calls the markets make on an ongoing basis by withdrawing capital. These institutions go around grant offices directly to the board, they flatter, they bully, they do what they need to do. Yet without tough calls and in the absence of an uh, uh, effective capital market, we get a landscape silted up with organizations without robust rationales, but with effective spokespeople at the helm. New models need incentives. They may need sticks as well as carrots. Second, most nonprofits that have reached a scale that warrants a sophisticated <coughs> strategy for contributed income have become at least partially corrupted by that process. Development, working the philanthropic market for capital, requires spin. Foundations with their own agendas inadvertently stimulate spin by encouraging organizations to repurpose themselves rhetorically. There is a systematic incentive to inflate their anticipated responses from the capital and consumer markets. Message to foundations, resist coercive philanthropy, do not require nonprofits to be all things to all funders, distinguish between planning and bidding, and allow nonprofits to specialize. Three, if an organization does not have commercially exploitable assets, but still has a wider social and artistic value, it is not obvious that it should go off and try to manufacture those assets. It may well require ongoing philanthropic support. This is not a short source of shame. Whether it is because it is preserving the canon or providing access to cultural experiences or providing opportunities for artistic self-expression, these are all of value and should be judged on their merits. Funders should not get bored by their commitments and roll organizations off simply because they want to create a rationale for their own activities. Fourth, if we want to uh, encourage entrepreneurial skills, then nonprofit funders should be more willing to fund for-profit organizations and develop hybrid. The challenges of acting entrepreneurial in a nonprofit are almost overwhelmingly if the current board expectations and fiduciary frameworks remain. There may be examples outside of the cultural sector from which we have to learn, but most entrepreneurial activity in the cultural sector is clandestine. Five, nonprofit art sector is carrying big overhead, big buildings, complex all-embracing agendas, etc. Incentivize simplicity rather than complexity. Discourage agendas that embrace a high ratio of fixed cost to variable costs, as this encourages the inflexibility, which is part of our problem. Six, do not expect nonprofit cultural organizations to solve problems that a more entrepreneurial for-profit sector has not itself solved. Much of the territory that is being explored by nonprofits is unresolved by all players. Seven, Invest in understanding examples. Examples, Where there appears to be a new business model, back them, of course, but as important, study them and disseminate the lessons. We have precious few. And meanwhile, my friend the Jazzer, with the great back catalogue, should probably seek 501c3 status and a benefactor and get his stunning and important music out on the web under the benefactor's aegis instead of stumbling awkwardly through the hoops of the new economy. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu.